Philippians chapter 1, and reading from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Philippians chapter 1, beginning with verse 12. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, becoming confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of good will. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in that I do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I know not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you, and having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Only let your conduct be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which ye saw in me, and now here to be in you. Shall we pray? Loving Father, we thank you for the reading of the scriptures. We ask your blessing upon it, and the hearing of it, the ministry of it by your spirit, and your working in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think this passage is quite an extended passage to speak on, for sure, but I trust that we'll be able to glean those things that are necessary and that it would be an encouragement to you. The title of the message, uh, of course, is a familiar one for me to live as Christ. And Paul's desire 
definitely was to live for Christ, and if necessary, to die for Christ. Uh, so we have four different areas we'll speak to as we have time this afternoon. Paul affirms all things for the furtherance of the gospel. Um, interesting, uh, Ed Sealy took practically, he took the same verse as his uh, missionary theme. Secondly, Paul affirms his bonds and defense of the gospel, uh, the very chains which he felt, the very imprisonment that he had upon him. Uh, was a period of time, but he also defended the gospel very vigorously. Thirdly, Paul affirms to live and die for the gospel. He believed that um, their prayers at Philippi would be part of the deliverance for him, that he might once again see them. But at the same time, he knew that he could be called upon to go home to be with the Lord. And then lastly, Paul encourages them to live as worthy citizens of Christ, uh, that their manner of life might be such as would be pleasing and glorifying to the Lord. Before we actually get into that message, I'd like to read an article which is um, important for us, I believe, in view of what I'm going to be speaking to you about for me to live as Christ. Uh, this particular article comes to comes to us out of um, uh, Hope for the World magazine or newsletter by Gary Carr, but is actually written by Mike Spaulding, who is the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Lima, Ohio. And he writes, this is a little bit lengthy, but I'm going to try to read most of it for you. Thus says the Lord of hosts, quote, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, The Lord has said, You will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say, Calamity will not come upon you. Jeremiah 23, 16 and 17. Are you a watcher? Question. I mean, do you pay attention to the times we live in? Are you aware of the shift in what is considered to be polite and impolite conversation, culturally speaking? Let me zero in on specifically on evangelism. Have you noticed the huge shift in the methods of presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ? I believe that many of the new approaches to evangelism are not well thought out and lack clear biblical support. The reason so many of these new emergence and hipsters strategies are gaining a foothold is because too many Christians have succumbed to a new definition of old words. Our society has determined that new definitions are needed in order to rationalize ungodly behavior. A case in point is the word tolerance. In America, tolerance used to mean that everyone had a right to express his or her viewpoint and everyone had a right to disagree with a viewpoint. Today, tolerance means that everyone has a right to express a viewpoint as long as it is, is, it, it is socially acceptable viewpoint. In other words, if you hold a viewpoint that is contrary to what society at large believes, 
you are not free to express yourself, and if you are brave enough to engage in a counter-view, then you will be met with a very hostile shout-down by the more enlightened people in our midst. This has clear implications for telling other people about Jesus Christ. It has become increasingly impolite and, in fact, culturally incorrect to speak about anyone needing Jesus. The Christian faith is being systematically muted by self-appointed elites and apparently many Christians are okay with this development. Tolerance used to mean defending the right of everyone to state an opinion in the public square. Today tolerance has been redefined to mean that only opinions consistent with those ideals espoused by our cultural elites are permitted. Attempts are made to silence all contradictory viewpoints and some are silenced through the weapon of choice for these elitists. Government activisms consider a couple of examples. Amy, uh, Army Lieutenant Colonel Christopher Downey is likely to be discharged after being administratively convicted of violating the military's open policy concerning gays. What was Colonel Downey's crime? He attempted to stop two lesbian army officers from filming their erotic behavior, including kissing, groping, and disrobing each other while on the dance floor at an official army officer's dance and dinner event. In another case in point, although certainly not surprising, California's legislature signed into law a bill permitting all public school children to self-identify their gender and based on that self-identification to then choose which restroom facility they will use. Such self-identification even allows boys to practice, participate on girls' sports teams and vice versa. Perhaps a single issue more than any other that provides proof of the redefinition of tolerance is, that, is the cultural war surrounding same-sex marriage. This is the mostly hotted, contested social issue of our day. But if cultural elitists have their way, all viewpoints that fall short of affirming and celebrating same-sex marriage will not be allowed but, but be silenced and criminalized. Intolerance is now state-sanctioned, and this is hardly controversial statement. Government-mandated practices that oppose Christian values are clearly evident. Some examples, the federally funded National Endowment of the Arts has financially supported expressions of art that serve no other purpose than to desecrate Christian symbols and sensitivities. The United States government continues to purge our military of chaplains who insist on praying in Jesus' name while increasing the number of Islamic imams and Wiccan priests who denounce Jesus Christ and the suppression of teachers who attempt to teach creation or dare to speak of evolution as a theory. More broadly, Christians who refuse political correctness are faced with censorship or cancellation, be it in the public sphere, academia, and even in the marketplace. Well, I'll pause right there with the article that goes on, but it says more practically of the same. But why did I read this except to say that the first century when Paul was living and preaching the gospel of Christ led him 
to Rome. From such government officials as Felix to Agrippa, and then his desire to go to Rome because of the burden that he had upon his heart from the Lord himself, that he must be an apostle to the Gentiles and must needs go to Rome, that he forded a great deal of difficulties, shipwreck among others, to go to Rome and to continue in his uh, incarcerated state, face the cultural activism of his own day from po the political realm, and continue to preach the gospel of Christ. Now, I would like to just say this to you and to myself. Are we doing enough of gospel activism? I'm not talking about political activism. There are enough political activists to go around. But are there enough gospel activists? Are there enough Christians who are willing to be like the Apostle Paul and say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? And to himself, he, he, it actually meant that he would suffer for Christ's sake. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we doing enough? We know that our culture is against us. We know that it is stacked against us in the political realm and in the cultural realm. And now it is becoming stacked against us in, among our own Christian churches, where many of them are taking the side of the government because of their wokeism or their, their compromise with the world. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we doing enough to be heard? Even if it means suffering for Christ's sake, you see. And that's really what we're talking about here in the last part of this chapter. Is whether or not the gospel is getting out and are we doing enough to accomplish that. Well, as we read in the newsletter from Ed Seeley, you know, he is uh, on the forefront of going to churches and doing visitation and working among the believers uh, there in Canada and even extending his ministry to Africa through various helps and support that they give to the pastor in Africa. Now what are we doing? Well we do have messages on sermon audio and, and uh, there are there is some outreach through that means of preaching Christ, but more largely probably to believers rather than to unbelievers because who else listens to sermons except probably believers? Uh, and so what other means can we do? Well, we are supporting Ed Seeley. Perhaps we should increase our support to ministries like that. Um, I don't know, but that is certainly an area for us to think about. And, uh, and I would like to have you do that, as well as to think about what you may be doing yourself. So let's look at this passage and, and talk about some of these, uh, some of these issues. In uh, verse 12 through 16, we look at this first area where, he's, where Paul affirms all things for the furtherance of the gospel. But I would, ye should, understand, brethren, 
that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherments of the gospel. Now, of course, that verse in itself, realizing that it's in the context of Paul's own witness and testimony of what had happened to him or what was happening to him at that time, is, says a lot about his particular attitude about the gospel. That he believed that those things that had happened to him were happening for the furtherments of the gospel. Now see, that kind of puts things in a different light, doesn't it? Many times we look at the, at the sufferings and trials and difficulties we go through and we don't necessarily think of them as happening for the furtherance of the gospel. And if you were the Apostle Paul, or if you were in the first century a Christian, and you were suffering the, the trials of your faith uh, because of your testimony for Christ, and namely, probably, just because you were a Christian, uh, things were happening to you, would you consider that the things that were happening to you were for the furtherance of the gospel, you see. Uh, it would take a, uh, a very strong uh, burden upon your part to realize that your faith was that significant and that God was using you even during those sufferings and trials you were going through. But in effect, that's what the apostle was saying. The, the fact that he came before Felix, the fact that he came before Agrippa, the fact that his own countrymen wanted to persecute him, the, the fact that he uh, suffered shipwreck and was beaten or uh, had 30 lash, 40 lashes, except for one. I guess they, did, they could give him 39. <laughs> But you see, if it's all of those things, all of those things happening to him, the fact that he was under guard, uh, and even in a, a, a house guard setting, um, all of that, and, and as well we should remember, there had to be some discomfort from perhaps lack of food, not having the comforts that he normally may be able to obtain if he was not in that situation. I mean, we, uh, we go to the, the grocery store quite often because we don't want to go without something. Um, and can you imagine somebody in the first century uh, suffering under the Roman rule and probably not having the luxury to go and to get everything that a person wanted to make them more comfortable in their own home. Well, um, for the furtherance of the gospel, he says, these things happen to me for the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifested in all the palace and in all other places. Of course, the word places is a supplied word. And so you could read it in all 
other, indicating other circumstances, other periods of time, all other places. And the Apostle Paul, of course, had this testimony. From his own experiences, Paul wanted the believers at Philippi to learn the importance of the truth that there are no accidents with God. Instead, Paul's ministry being curtailed because of his bondage, he believed it was actually advanced. Now see, that takes a very unusual person to be able to to have that kind of, of forward thinking, to realize that everything that is happening the good and the bad and the ugly, we might say, is all a part of God's purpose and plan for me that I might be a better witness for Christ. Now see, that has to challenge us because we also live in the moment. We also have the opportunity to witness for Christ and in some cases to suffer for Christ. And Paul was, he was doing it. He was doing it. And in this particular letter, which he writes back to Philippi, uh, to the Philippian Christians, he wanted them to, to know this, that these things that were happening were for the furtherance of the gospel. Even the bondage or the sufferings of his being detained by the Roman government was all a part of God's plan for him. He was willing to see it that way. You know, sometimes things happen to us and immediately we think we're being punished. Well, unless there has been some specific area that you feel you've been punished for, Maybe it's for another reason, rather than punishment. God doesn't always do that. And in some cases, we, you know, people hold that viewpoint, it makes God look very bad. May even see him, may see God as being vindictive, or God is somehow uh, getting even, or even retaliatory. And, uh, you know, the world looks at uh, the Bible very differently than you and I. And uh, we ought to uh, consider how we view the Word of God. As Paul had the right attitude here, the right viewpoint. In verse 14, And many of the brethren in the Lord becoming confident by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So now he begins to enumerate some of the things that he believes are actually for the furtherance of the gospel. He says, uh, it, he says these things fell out for the furtherance of the gospel in my case. That I had opportunity to be a witness in the palace and in other circumstances. That people were being encouraged in their own faith because... I was suffering. I was suffering. Now, that takes a, a pretty good-sized Christian to do that. I mean, someone with their, their gospel head screwed on straight to realize that, you know, that um, they are being an encouragement to other people just because they are suffering. 
because they are standing for Christ. Have you considered that? That when you stand for Christ, you may be encouraging other people to stand for Christ too? You see? And, and he, he believed this. He believed it. It was not a fallacy. It was a truth. It was a truth. In verse 15, some indeed preach Christ of envy and strife and some of goodwill. He said there are two different camps of people. Some people are very envious. Some people do what they're doing not to help me, but in some sense against me. And some people are for me. They believe that they are somehow aiding me in the work of preaching Christ. Now, if you've had any experience at all in churches, you know that these two kinds of people exist. It seems like some people in churches, they, they're against everything you're doing when it comes to the furtherance of the gospel. Let me give case in point. Some churches are so miserly about spending their money, they'd rather have it rot in the bank than they had to spend it on evangelism or outreach or in some sense getting the word out to other people. Now, that is not a very good attitude to have about the funds that God gives us to be used. And we struggle with these things. Why do we struggle with it? Because that's a part of our natural makeup. To, to do so. I mean, that's what we do at home. We, we, we hoard everything we can so that we can get by on the things that we have. But the church is built differently. The church is built up of people of faith who are supposed to be giving their money to the support of the work and the furtherance of the gospel of Christ. We are supposed to be challenged to take our money and to use it for the gospel. Not to hoard it for the gospel. We're supposed to be givers and lenders and supporters and evangelizing missionaries doing all kinds of things each of us are the same in this we have to be challenged to do it we have to continually look at what we think and what we do with the funds that God gives to us and try to use that money that we can further the gospel we can further it and so here we have Paul he says here I am I'm in confinement some are envious because of my gospel preaching and are against me. Others are doing what they are doing out of goodwill toward me and it is helping. In verse 16, for one preached Christ of contention, contention, we know what that is, not sincerely, they're not preaching God sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. The word defense here is the word apologia. It's the word which means we get apology from. It's the word that we use to say, we are, uh, are doing what we can to defend the gospel of Christ. There's a doctrine of apologetics, and you can buy books on apologetics. And how you are to take the Bible and to defend the Word of God. And the best apologetic for the Bible is the Bible. 
We can't, we can't argue anybody into, the hev into heaven. But the word of God, which is the truth of the scripture, is able to reach the hearts and lives of people. Now see, here is a place where we sometimes let ourselves down. Sometimes we would rather argue a person into heaven than we had just give him, the, give him or her the gospel message. And in, in a sense, probably that's what's happening in this article that I just read previously. They're trying to pacify the world with the gospel in a way that won't offend them. And say, so they don't want to pray in Jesus' name. They just want them, oh, you can pray, but not in Jesus' name, you see. Well, you see, it isn't enough to do that. You must pray in Jesus' name. Jesus is the true Lord and Savior. He is the one who came and died for the sins of the world. We must do that. We can't, we can't compromise and not pray in Jesus' name. So some of these chaplains are being, you know, kicked out or shoved aside or humiliated are intimidated. I wonder, do we, allow, uh, do we allow them to do that to us? The them, of course, is the world, the cultural elite, the cultural conformers. Do we allow them to do that to us, you see? We don't want to allow them to do that to us. We need to stand. We need to have a good apologia, a good defense. Let the scriptures speak for you. Verse 18, What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ has preached, and in that I do rejoice and will rejoice. So Paul says, either way, I know that God is going to be blessed. And the gospel is going to be preached. He says, I know. Whether somebody is preaching out of envy and strife, or someone is preaching out of goodwill, and I am here in this place of suffering and in bonds, he's, and the furtherance of the gospel is still going to happen, because God has a purpose, and there are no accidents with God. And I am set for the defense of the gospel of Christ. Well, either we become pacifists for the gospel or activists for the gospel, you see. And Paul was not a pacifist. He was not a pacifist. He did actually do things that were perhaps more antagonistic toward his circumstance. That is, he didn't, he didn't just go, he wasn't led away like a lamb to the slaughter. No, he, he took his opportunities when he went before Agrippa. He tried to convince Agrippa about the true historicity of the gospel, of what the word of God said historically. And basically he said to Agrippa, you know what I'm saying to you is true. You know the word of God. And I am standing for Christ, and Christ is the true Messiah of God. And he did come and he did die for our sins upon the cross. You see, he, he, wasn't, he didn't go away calmly, but rather was very much in defense of the gospel, even before the very people 
who were against him. He, he made his case. He was courageous. And so in the opposition, he caused others to speak more courageously and fearlessly for Christ. Thirdly, Paul affirms to live and die for the gospel. Verse 19, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation. Now the word salvation, here is the word soteria. We get the, the doctrine of soteriology from it, which is the doctrine of salvation. And so basically the word salvation can mean a number of different things depending upon the way that it is used. In the Old Testament, it is used basically of deliverance. When God saved his people from some difficulty, he delivered them from it. When God is the God of salvation in the Old Testament, uh, they didn't accept Christ. They accepted the God of creation and the one true and living God. And David said, Lord, shall I go up against these Philistines, these ungodly Philistines, or shall I withhold? And God gave David indication whether he should go up or he shouldn't. And so what happened? When he followed the word of the God, of God, he was delivered. He was saved. He and his people were saved. The word salvation here means deliverance. Does it also have in view Paul's future salvation? Well, it can. But obviously the context, he's in prison right now. And he says, I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer. And so the Philippian believers were praying for Paul that he would be released at some point. And the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, he wasn't released. It doesn't mean that God didn't save him. It only meant that that wasn't the will of God for him to know his full salvation. His full salvation would come when he went to be with the Lord. And he indicated that here a little bit later. And so as we read on, According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether in life or by death. Okay, there it is right there. He says, either way, by life or by death, I shall know what the salvation of God is. It may be deliverance, but it may also be that the Lord wants me to be delivered from this world unto the world which is to come. And his hope, in other words, his hope in Christ was in both directions. You know, that's a, a, that's a wonderful thing to think about. Our hope in Christ is in both directions right now. Well, I'm sure you hope to wake up tomorrow morning. You probably hope to, you know, live for a quite a few more years, perhaps. You want to see your grandchildren. You want to have a, a, a good, long, healthy life. You probably have some certain ambitions in your faith, things you want to see accomplished. You want to support the church. You, you, you want to be around to hear the next message that the pastor is going to lengthily give to you. <laughs> In other words, your hope is here. Yes, it is here. But it is also, you say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I want to go to be with the Lord when I 
expire. So your your hope your hope is no different than the Apostle Paul. He had a hope in both directions. He did. And so in twenty one, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose I know not. If I live in the flesh, well, there, there is the fruit of my labor to live in the flesh for Christ. And so we have to be challenged to do that too, right? And then he says, Yet what I shall choose, I know not. Well, here we are. We're in a predicament. It's a, it's a little bit of a paradox for us. What shall we do? Shall we go to be with the Lord or shall we str- struggle on? And Paul, Paul didn't know what he wanted in this thing no more than you and I do. You know, we want to be here until the Lord gets ready. But we don't want to miss the moment when the Lord is ready. We want to be on the train, the gospel train, to take us to glory, you see. For I am in a strait between two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. You see, here is the heavenly aspirations of the apostle so do not feel so bad if you have this two-pronged view it, it, it is a quite a normal one for us to have and I think a healthy one a healthy view that we have our feet planted here but our eyes directed toward heaven that we might continue in faith, that we might continue to work and to labor and to honor the Lord. Paul affirms to live and die for the gospel, and of course we should be doing the same. Verse 24, Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. So here, here is his view back to them at Philippi. He says, I want to stick around for you people. He says, He was like a father to children. Well, as one commentator said, there were three people that kind of marked out his ministry. One was Lydia. She was an Asiatic woman. She was a seller of purple. She was somewhat of a businesswoman, I guess, you might say. Because purple was a very important color and perhaps a quite an expensive one. And she evidently was involved in marketing this expensive product but yet she was at the river praying and she made an encounter and the Lord opened her heart and she was saved another very interesting person that Paul had something to do with is Timothy Timothy is a Greek so we have an Asiatic woman we have a Greek the mother was a Jewish The father was a Greek, and so Timothy became a convert to the gospel, and we know of the Timothy epistles and of the great uh, effort that was put forward by the apostle to train up Timothy in the way he should go. But he received a lot of his schooling at the the apron strings of Eunice and uh, his mother. 
And then there was a third, Onesimus. Onesimus is a slave. We have an Asiatic, we have a Greek, and then we have a Roman slave. Paul became influential in these three people. A slave. Nobody had anything to do with a slave. It was kind of like the, the lowest of the low in the strata of society. But not too low for the gospel. The gospel can reach anybody. And the gospel was reaching out to people in every quarter of society. We don't want to miss anyone in our outreach, do we? We don't want to miss anyone. There may be those who, who are expensive business people. There may be those who are privileged in society and those who are slaves. But God is able to change any and all of them. And you see, here is the apostle in his, in his true confidence. And having this confidence, verse 25, I know I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. That your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. So, see, he intended to, to, to come to them. He believed that their prayers would redound to his deliverance in some sense. He wanted to be with Christ, but he knew that it was more expedient for him to stay. He wanted to come unto them at Philippi. Here is the burden of ministry, you see. The burden of ministry goes in all directions at the same time. Many who are pastors don't know hardly which way to go at the same time because they are trying to accomplish so much in what they are doing. And we, we, uh, you and I must get a hold of this concept. We shouldn't have tunnel vision when it comes to, to ministry. We ought to have a very, a very broad look at things around us that we don't miss an opportunity, you see. And the Apostle Paul was like this. He didn't want to miss an opportunity. He says, and then, a verse, and then finishing up here at the end, Paul encourages them to live as worthy citizens of Christ. He says, only let your conduct or your manner of life or your conversation, as the King James uses, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Be as it become the gospel of Christ. This idea, it means that you are to be a worthy citizen. That's what it means. It means that you are to be a worthy citizen. And so we find that we are to, to um, conduct ourselves in a manner that is honoring to God. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, he says, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. If there is one people that should not be divided, it's the church. The church should never be divided. It always ought to be of one spirit and of one mind, of one gospel in the faith. You see. So if you have any kind of inclinations against one another in the church, you want to get rid of it quick. You want to get rid of it. Because the church should never be divided. If it is, it will not accomplish those things that they could accomplish otherwise. You see. 
And so we need to keep our mind open to things that we can do for the gospel and how the church can function, how we can reach out to people and to accomplish this unity. Verse 28, And then nothing terrified by your adversaries. He says you're going to have adversaries. Don't be terrified. Which is to them an evident token of perdition. If they are adversaries, they're not on your side. If they are not for Christ, they are against Christ. It is an evident token of their perdition. In other words, their judgment but to you of salvation and that of God. You see, to you it is an evident token of salvation. Your one spirit and one faith and one gospel. Your unity, you see. The fact that you are together is an evident token of your salvation. Because you know where your allegiance lies collectively. It is in Christ. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, see, here it is, but to suffer for his sake. It is given unto you to believe but to suffer for his sake. Those are the two things that, that Christians are, are to do. They are to believe and they are to suffer for Christ's sake. Having the same conflict which he saw in me, in me, he says, being Paul, and now I here, and now here to be in me. You know that that was in me. I believed. You know I was willing to suffer. I, and he wanted them at Philippi also to follow. Because it meant they would be truly living for Christ. As true worthy citizens of the gospel. For me to live is Christ. Shall we pray? Loving Father, we thank you for your love and grace and mercies to us. Lord, we are challenged by the scriptures that you have given to us. We know that we need to improve much. Help us, Lord, to bear up these things, these sufferings, the belief that you would have us to bear and to witness to others. Challenge us that we will look for ways to give out the message collectively as a church and individually as believers. Father, we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.